You're listening to 89.5 FM KOPN Columbia, mid-Missouri's source for in-depth news, diverse talk and music of the world. It's not just radio, it's community radio on the web at kopn.org. And this is Speaking of the Arts. Good morning and welcome to Speaking of the Arts on KOPN, an hour of news, views and interviews on the arts in mid-Missouri. I'm Diana Moxon. Today's show is all about world premieres. Tonight we have no less than seven world premieres taking place in Colombia, one opera and six plays. And people think that we live in a sleepy Midwest town. Later in the show, I'm going to be talking about the Starting Gate New Play Festival, which is at Talking Horse Theatre this weekend and features six brand new, never before seen world premiere plays by three local playwrights. But first, we're going to dive into the world of opera and talk about a program of opera scenes, including the world premiere of A Certain Madness, composed by Hans Bridger Heruth, who just happens to be sitting here in the studio with me, along with the director of Show Me Opera, Christine Seitz. Christina Hans, welcome to Speaking of the Arts. Thank you. It's great to be here. <laughs> Christine, I know that you wear many other hats besides that of Show Me Opera. You're also the teaching professor of music and director of the voice area in the Mizzou School of Music. And Hans, you're a student at Mizzou studying with Christine. But in reading about you both, I thought it was interesting that you both have mothers who teach and play music and you both have fathers who have a background in the sciences. Hans, your father's a molecular biologist working at a hospital and Christine, your father, was a physician. Yes, that's true. <laughs> but then it changes. Christine, you're one of 11 children. And Hans, do you have siblings or are you an only child? I'm an only child. Okay. <laughs> so I'm curious about how music was part of your early lives and that ro- early role of kind of nurture versus nature. So Christine, what, was, what were your early years like in terms of music? Well, uh, every member of my family took music lessons. My mother had been a piano teacher. My father loved to sing had a great voice uh, that was an avocation for him so we all did music lessons all through grade school and most of us through high school I had many siblings who played string instruments and I took piano lessons and we sang in choirs and when I went to college music was just the thing I felt like I wanted more background in I felt like I knew a lot about it but not as much as I wanted to history more musical theory and just learn more about stuff and perform more things. So I chose a music major rather than going into the sciences or agriculture. Half my family went into agriculture business. One became a doctor. I mean, all over the map what we all did. But that was the choice I made. Did anyone else go into music? Uh, Yes, a couple were um, uh, elementary and high school music teachers. Yeah, but just a few, not, not... not the majority. So now when you're, there's you know, 11 of you and you're pretty much all involved with music somehow, did you kind of have a family band? Did you play performances? Well, a family choir, yes. Yeah. Um, my father for some time in Madison uh, was the chief of staff at St. Mary's Hospital and we would get together on Christmas Eve and sing Christmas Eve Mass complete with Gregorian chant and four-part motets and the whole nine yards within <laughs> within the family. So that was fun. <laughs> was, was everybody happy to do that? Was anybody kind of forced into it? No, no, were? everyone really enjoyed that. It was really a, a, an amazing experience and just once a year, you know. It wasn't right. like all the time. <laughs> 
And Hans, you started playing piano and studying voice with your mother at the age of three. I did indeed. What, what are your memories of your early musical years? Sure. Well, it was always really wonderful to have um, music to share with my mother. Uh, it, it's a very special experience to study something so personal like music with someone as close to you as a family member. And it, I, it was something that I enjoyed from when I started, but it was around the age you know, of 10 or 11 when I really started to realize that music was my passion. And uh, then I started playing violin as well, in addition to singing and playing piano. And I started composing. And through my middle school and junior high and high school years, I had plenty of teachers and conductors that, you know, I played in their ensembles and I studied with, and they would make sure that my music would receive performances and that I would have people to sing or play it. And it was such an, an inspiring and encouraging experience for me that it, that is really what drove me to pursue music more in college. It's difficult to remember what you did when you were the age of three, but was it, was it you reaching for the piano? Or was your mother saying, here, Hans, here's a piano? Like, who, who instigated that? I, I think it was something along the lines of, you know, I would sit down at the piano with her while she was playing and I would you know, try and play notes along with her. And I think that was what encouraged her to, ah, you know, maybe he can be a musician one day. <laughs> Now, at the age of nine, you started playing violin and then started composing works in your early teens. But I'm guessing that you were, at least in your head, composing works earlier than that. So you had incredible creative sensibilities at, an, at a very young age. And how did that affect the world you saw around you? Were you constantly taking note of what was happening around you and composing music from it? I think in a way I was. If you, if you would ask my parents, I was always humming something, you know, or whistling, or no matter what I was doing, if, if we were, you know, running errands, or just at home relaxing, I, I, I think there was always a tune in my head, whether or not I realized it was my own. Uh, would you, would you uh, sing requests, like, you know, is dinner ready? Would I mean, would music just be automatic <laughs> come to you? I, I don't think to that level at that point, but... <laughs> So there are a lot of correlations between proficiency in music and science or math. And both of you, as we said, have opted to pursue the music over the science option, despite both households being imbued with science and art. Was, was science ever an option for you, Christine? Uh, probably, but never really like you should do this with your life. Never like that. I don't think it was... Um, yeah, it wasn't, nah, I don't know how to explain <laughs> how I made my choice. Um, I was really uh, allowed to explore the things that I had a passion for. Did you like science and math at school? Were you good at them? I was good at it, but I reached a certain point in high school where it was time that the next class I would take in math would be calculus, and that's when I said, I really want to concentrate on something else. And I took more literature I took an art class. When I was a senior in high school, I was allowed to explore a whole lot of stuff that I hadn't had time for before that. I had a proficiency with foreign languages that I really enjoyed, and I, I took advantage of that in college big time. Um, I had to study Italian, French, and German as part of my voice major, but I also chose to do a year in Russian just as yeah, just just cause so that I could sing in Russian as well. So those kinds of things were things that I was allowed to explore and no one really put an example in front of me like you really should choose this path. I was allowed to choose my own, which was really wonderful. Do you think being good at math and science has helped 
your musical brain at all or analysis of music? Perhaps. I, I, you know, I do have a left hemisphere side, a logical sequential side. So when it comes time to analyze music, I can sit down and do it and, and really understand the inner workings of it. But I have to say that it isn't just the science background. I also had uh, a farm background. We lived in the country and did all the 4-H things. So I showed cattle at the fair and I sewed and learned to cook. And, and all of those things I draw on just as much as any of the science things to cook combined with what I do as specifically as an opera director. Uh, all the time I draw on all of that background. Hence, is science something that well, math has affected you at all or, or been an option for you? I think so. I mean, both of my parents were always very supportive in me pursuing what my desires and what my passions were. And I think, you know, my, my proficiency with the maths and the sciences has helped me in a lot of ways as a musician because as Professor Seitz was saying, it allows you to open up that left hemisphere of your brain. Uh, but I think it also goes, you know, hand in hand with a quality liberal arts education where, you know, everything that you learn makes you a more complete intellectual. And I think that also really helps advance myself as a musician. One of my fascinations is the intersection of art and science and music is heavily represented at that junction. There is a, a neuroscientist called Dr. Charles Lim, um, who is also a musician, a jazz musician. And he looks at he he puts people in an MRI and maps the brain as they are improvising or rapping to see which parts of the brain light up. And, and needless to say, it's the kind of the daydream part of the brain um, that lights up when we are improvising music. I, I love the theory of cymatics and the visualization of sound is just so fascinating. There's an incredible New Zealand composer called Nigel Stanford that has a video where you see cymatics in action with, action with fire organs and the, um, oh, what's it called, the, the plate Mike, you're a scientist, uh, Kladney, the Cladney plate, where you can put sand on the plate and you put vibrations through it, and depending on the, um, the frequency, then the pattern changes, which is just fascinating. So I wondered if that intersection of art and science is something that you'd ever come across in the world of opera and classical music, or it, it's, it's pretty much not quite in that area yet. I think that Professor Seitz would agree with me in saying that especially in the field of vocal music, there's a lot of science that goes into how we learn to use our voices with evaluating how the muscles are working and the breath control and the support and the freedom of the of the mechanism. Yeah, that's absolutely true. But it's it's more like background work. It's not like we're making a, an artwork necessarily and thinking of portraying the juxtaposition between art and science, although I'm sure that's happening. There's so much new opera happening in this country that it's really uh, amazing and and opera and in small uh almost counterculture settings all across the country these days oh yeah many 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 little little outgrowth opera companies that are doing things with absolutely zero budgets in alternative spaces and new works being premiered and old works being reproduced in new ways. I saw a video of a La Boheme done completely with women, all women singing all the roles, no matter whether they were male gender or women gender, and among other things happening in alternative spaces all across the country. And so it's inevitable that somebody's going to do, I mean, there already have been, like um, John Adams' piece, uh, Dr. Atomic, 
is about science. It's an opera about science. Mm-hmm. You know, there there already have been pieces like that, and there will no doubt be more. Opera, a little bit like new music, is sometimes difficult to consume unless you have a background in it. So you're saying more opera is being produced. Is more opera being consumed, or are these alternative spaces and new compositions pulling more people in, do you think, a younger audience? I think they're pulling in a different audience. And I think when people create those groups, part of the reason is so that they can get together and perform and get some more stage experience. But part of the reason is to introduce this genre to a different audience that's not going to come to a formal concert hall. And and it's it's pretty exciting because opera is a genre that speaks to anyone. Any human being gets it because of the storytelling aspect and because of the dramatic intensity that happens when the voices are the conveyor of that. And so it, there's, a, there's a, an amazing amount of new things going on in the country that I'm just kind of blown away by when I sit back and look at it. Which gets us onto this weekend's program. So Hans, as well uh, as oh, Christina's both, as well as an operatic repertoire of scenes from seven operas, the program also includes the world premiere of uh, your one-act opera called A Certain Madness, composed by you. Um, and guess the libretto was also written by you. It was indeed. Okay. So tell us about the opera. Sure. Well, ever since I was a child, I've been so endeared by mystery. I, I love, you know, all the mystery novels and especially those of Sir Arthur, Con- Sir Arthur Conan Doyle, the Sherlock Holmes mysteries. And when Professor Seitz and I discussed the possibility that I could write an opera for the Show Me Opera program, the first thing that my mind went to was a Sherlock Holmes opera. <laughs> and uh, at first I considered... Um, turning one of his short stories into a chamber opera. But then uh, my composition teacher and I got the idea of uh, Arthur Conan Doyle's interest in spiritualism. And he was a big believer in the seances and, you know, contacting the spirits. And we thought it would be very cool to juxtapose this intellectualist idea of Sherlock Holmes and this sort of cold, unfeeling investigator with a medium and to see how that interplay would happen. So in my opera, Certain Madness, uh, one of John Watson's dear friends from the military has been murdered, and the family of this man has invited Watson to a seance so that they can hope to get some closure and perhaps uh, figure out who murdered their father. And Watson tells Sherlock about this and asks him to join him. And at first, Sherlock is taken aback by the idea. You know, that, you know, that business is full of frauds, he says, but... At the end of the interaction, Sherlock decides that he'll come with out of pure morbid curiosity. <laughs> and as Sherlock arrives at the estate and, you know, the seance begins and they get closer to solving the murder, Sherlock, with his own methods of investigation and the medium by contacting the spirits, Sherlock finds that perhaps the medium is more real than he might have first expected. So not giving it away. Who, who sol- we don't know who solves the mystery until we come and see the opera, right? Of course. <laughs> <laughs> so as a Sherlock Holmes fan, I have to ask you this. Are you a Benedict Cumberbatch, Martin Freeman, British fan club, or the Johnny Lee Miller, Lucy Liu, US fan club? I've, I've watched both shows and I love both of them, but I'd have to say I'm a, I'm a British fan. Oh, hooray. Johnny good. <laughs> My choice too. <laughs> it's a fine choice. I love watching Benedict Cumberbatch and Martin Freeman together. They're such an awesome couple. So as well as a chorus of 18 in the, in the opera, you have six leading characters. Tell us who they are. Sure. 
Uh, Marcus Jarrell Ruff, Grammy Award-winning former member of, member of Chanticleer, will be portraying Sherlock Holmes. Connor Cochran will be playing John Watson. Aubrey Smith will be playing the role of Madame Desrochers, the medium. <laughs> Great name. Mm. Uh, Martha Allen will be playing Ada Blake, the daughter of the man who was murdered. Savan Hayes will be playing Jasper Blake, the son of the man who was murdered. And Madison Claire Page will be pay- playing Constance, the widow of Major Blake. Okay, so we're going to listen to a snippet of the opera. This is Sherlock's aria from A Certain Madness, featuring baritone Marcus Jarrell Ruff in a performance that was broadcast on KBIA's Radio Friends show this past Tuesday with audio engineering by Aaron Hay. So thank you to KBIA and let's take a listen. Couldn't have done it. Look at her frame. She's far too weak to kill a man of a military background. But one of them is the murderer. I must know. Marcus Jarrell Ruff singing Sherlock's aria from a brand new opera called A Certain Madness, which premieres tonight at the Rheinsberger Theatre and was written by Hans Bridger Herruth. So as a vocal performer, Hans, you, like Sherlock, are a baritone. So when you're composing an operatic score, is it more challenging to compose for voices that are in a different range than your own? I don't think so. I think 
when I first started to write for voice, it was definitely something that I had to learn how to do. Uh, but as a singer myself, and having had plenty of years, you know, interacting with other singers and going to see other operatic works by, you know, the great composers, you know, Verdi and Mozart and Tchaikovsky, you know, it's it's something that I think is, for me at least, easy to get a hold of doing. And of course, in addition to all the different voice types, each voice is so individual and being able to write for these specific voices I think offered more <laughs> of sort of a period of grace rather than a challenge because you know these are people that I know very well and have sung with many of times before but the the real actors the characters have been in your head for a long while but you mean the real people yes, yeah. <laughs> so technology has done a lot to alter the composition process with things like garage bands and logic pro do you use those or do you sit down with staff paper and a pencil I, I sit down with staff paper and a pencil, and I, I do everything by hand. There's of course I knew you were going to say that. <laughs> there's notation software to make it look like published quality, right. but I, I prefer to do everything on paper first. <laughs> Christine, what components of Hans score and libretto stand out to you? Well, I think one thing that's really interesting is that even in his very first opera, he understands the difference between conversations and arias and ensembles and so we have all three of those types of writing in this in this piece uh, what I stipulated from the beginning was that it would be a one-act opera and be only 30 minutes in length because I knew that that was what I wanted on this program in the fall because the other part of the program features all the rest of the singers in the class everybody has a solo role in one or another of the the scenes so even within 30 minutes, he's drawn a very clear dramatic arc. He's given us intensely, beautifully developed arias like the one we just heard. And the medium also has a really interesting aria. And then Constance has another aria. Um, and then we also have conversations with characters between each other. And then we have little ensembles near the end. And then, of course, there's the chorus that is the ghosts. And this was really interesting uh, part of the, you know, there are things that you can sit down and make a plan when you first start, but then there are things that just happen along the way. I, when we got the number of people that were going to be in the class at the beginning of the fall, I had the six principals and then I had 18 more in the class. And I said to Hans, you know, I would like them all to be ghosts. Is that okay? And he said, sure. So we've got 18 ghosts, which is a lot. <laughs> so it's a powerful medium. You know, but it makes a really amazing effect on the stage and especially at the end of the opera, which is a very compelling moment. And I don't know how he knew that was going to be when he wrote that down, but it it's dramatically really, really striking moment. So I, I feel like I am uh, with hands that I am sitting in the company of greatness. So I'm, I'm not surprised <laughs> it's a dramatic moment at the end, you know, and it's really, I have to brag on you, but it's a struggle to give a short pricey of your accomplishments because you're 21. Right. And you already they go across so many musical fields, composition, instrument and vocal performances. You made your debut as a baritone with the Liberty Symphony Orchestra at the age of 14. You were the concert master of the first place orchestra at the 2015 American String Teachers Association, the three time winner of the Mizzou New Music Initiatives Creating Original Music Competition. At 19, you were the winner of the 2016 ASCAP Morton Gould Young Composers Award. Your works have been performed 
performed by renowned solo musicians, including world-famous tenor Stephen Tharp, pianist Paolo Savido of the New Music Piano Duo. Christine, you've been teaching at Mizzou for 10 years and you've seen a lot of talented students pass through the music program. How unusual is it to find someone who at just 21 has a list of accomplishments and awards as long as Hans. Oh, it's pretty unusual. And what's unusual about Hans is that they spread across all of the the aspects of music. It's not just, he's not just a singer. He's not just a violinist. He's not just a composer. He is accomplished in all levels of it. So I, I think his aspiration to become a conductor in the future is really, really like a no-brainer because he's going to bring all these elements together. But yeah, he's a really unusual young man. And it's it's really been a pleasure to work on the, the piece with him. Are you going to be staying? We talked before we came on air that you're a senior this year. Are you planning to stay at Mizzou for your graduate and doctoral program? Please say yes. <laughs> I'll, I'll be going on to schooling elsewhere, but I will always Darn. cherish the time that I've had here at Mizzou. It's been a really wonderful educational opportunity. And from all of the faculty, for them to make it so possible for me to pursue all of my interests, it's, it's something that you really wouldn't find anywhere else. It's unusual. Yeah. As we have about a, about a minute left, just give us a quick roundup. As well as the the world premiere tomorrow night, we have scenes from seven operas, I believe, Christine. Yeah. Is that correct? Yeah, we'll have the Act Four chorus from Carmen, which is as the audience is getting ready to go into the bullfight arena. We'll have the Act One duet from Elixir of Love between the tenor Nemorino and Adina, the soprano. We have a short scene from the beginning of Cosi Fan Tutte, where the boys are pretending to go off to war and the girls sing a very tearful goodbye. We have a scene from the beginning of Act Two of Don Giovanni where Giovanni dresses in Leporello's clothes and puts Leporello under the balcony in his clothes to serenade Dona Elvira to try to get her out of the way. And then we have a beautiful lady trio from Berlioz's Beatrice and Benedict from near the end of the opera when uh, Hero is getting ready to be married and Beatrice finally, finally, finally caves in and 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 is amenable to the whole situation. We have a, a scene from the beginning of Hansel and Gretel between the mother and the father. And then we have a trio from Mozart's Impresario, which is a true dueling diva uh, phenomenon where they each outdo each other singing higher and higher and higher notes. And you did that all without notes. Well done. I was following this on. The, it's perfect following it on the list here. Okay, so tickets are still available. It's at the Rheinsberger Theatre tonight at 7.30 and tomorrow night at 7.30. But there's correct. only two performances. That is correct. And uh, they can get tickets by turning up at the box office or you can also go online to, I think, theatre.missouri.edu. That is correct. Um, yes. Do you remember what the phone number is for tickets? I do not have the phone Me number neither. in my head. I'm so sorry. <laughs> okay, yeah. And that's on this weekend. So if you would like to see the world premiere of A Certain Madness, as well as these other opera scenes at the Rheinsberger Theatre. Tonight and tomorrow, you say you only have two chances to see this. Hans, what happens to the opera after tomorrow night? I'll make plenty of edits and hopefully it will get more performances. Do you think you'll make it longer? Perhaps, perhaps. <laughs> Christine is shaking her head. No. I think it's really a perfect one act. I really think it's beautiful <laughs> in its simplicity.
Yeah. Well, I can't wait to see it. I'm hoping to be there tomorrow night to see it. Christine Seitz and Hans Bridger-Heruth, thank you so much for coming on to Speaking of the Arts, and I will see you this weekend. Do, don't forget, if you want to get tickets, uh, you only have two chances to see this world premiere of A Certain Madness. You're listening to Speaking of the Arts on 89.5 FM, KOPN Columbia, and after the break, I'll be back with Audra Sergal and Michelle Curry to talk about the Starting Gate New Play Festival with six more world premieres happening this weekend. Stay close to your wireless. Welcome back to Speaking of the Arts on 89.5 FM, KOPN Columbia. And it is always a scintillating pleasure to welcome Talking Horse Productions to the studio. It's like your home away from home. Um, and this week we have Audra Sergal and Michelle Curry here to talk about the second annual Starting Gate New Play Festival, which you can see this Friday and Saturday. Ladies, welcome back. Thank you. Thank you. So, Audra... I was looking back on our past visits and you have been on the show as a musician, singer-songwriter, an event organiser, a choir director, and now you're here as a playwright. So I'm wondering what is next. Should I expect a trapeze artist, an Oscar nominee? God, I would love to do trapeze stuff, but no. An origami master? Like, what? Do you ever say no? Do you ever say, I don't think I can do that? Oh, you know, I was really excited about when I saw that they were doing Starting Gate again because I knew I had seen Trent Rash do the work the year before. And I was like, boy, that would be really good since we wrote that musical together. I was like, look at him honing his skills. I want to hone my skills. And so I was inspired by Trent. So you did. Yes. Um, and Michelle, I love always seeing you on the stage. You always uh, just have such a great stage presence. And you also MC events and you direct plays. Do you also watercolor while, while skiing? <laughs> no, not yet. But watercoloring <laughs> is on my bucket list. <laughs> So tonight, tomorrow and Sunday afternoon, there is a chance to see the world premiere of six one-act, ten-minute plays penned by three local playwrights. Nathan O'Neill, Hayley Rushing and our very own Audra Sergal, each of whom has two plays being performed for the first time. Mm -hmm. So before we get into the specifics of the plays, Audra, fill me in on the background to the festival and how it works. You know, I what I understand is that there's a committee, from my, my knowledge, there's a committee um, from people at Talking Horse, and then they read the scripts in an anonymous fashion, um, so you're not allowed to put your name on them in any way, and then um, they give feedback, the, the panel of judges, and they decide who the three playwrights are going to be, and then from that process, we start looking for directors, and then there were auditions held, and so at that point, we cast, and um, they started rehearsing, and from what I understand, some of the rehearsals have been a couple of weeks long so they've been an intense rehearsal schedule um again they're two, 10 minute plays so that makes you know since they don't have to have weeks of production um and then they've been in tech week all this week and i think you've given a on the playwrights given a prompt at the beginning of the call for entries and what yes. was what was the prompt you had this year truth slash lies ah the true false yeah <laughs> truth, truth slash lies so was the prompt yes <laughs> okay Truth and lies. And this is the second time it was done. So it started last year. And do you, do you know who instigated it? How did it all come about? What's its origin story? The Starting Gate Play Festival? Mm -hmm. I'm actually under the impression that this might be the fourth or fifth year. Oh. But whether it just wasn't an incorporated festival is, is a little past well, my knowledge history on this too <laughs> but each year getting together the playwrights so that they before directors and actors even come in have a chance to work with each other and critique each mm -hmm. other's work help them become better playwrights together so it's really a great community experience from the point of the writers and then directors and actors can come in like I did with 
little to no experience directing and, and kind of throw themselves into a project that's not so eight weeks long and very intense and just kind of try out something new that they've never done before. Do either of you know how many plays were submitted or how many playwrights entered this year? Yes, they mentioned that last night. I think they said eight playwrights were, submit, were uh, submitted their works and three were chosen. And any idea why? Because you each have two in the festival. So I wonder why they don't do six playwrights, each doing one, where you each have two. And do you submit two at the beginning? Or do you submit one and they say, yes, we like that, write another? So we submitted a play, um, one play, and then that's not the play that we're doing. So oh. we uh, once we submitted the play, they uh, you know adjudicated it, sort of say the panel, panel adjudicated it, and then from there we were given the prompt and we wrote two new works. Uh-huh. So we started writing over the summer and then started having uh, workshops over the summer for the work. So we had readings and that kind of thing, and then went back to the drawing board, came back again to another reading, went back to the drawing board again. <laughs> I think I was at the drawing board like two weeks before we started production so yeah <laughs> so just fi- finalizing those details so um, but I don't know why they don't do six I, maybe it's because the um, entries were small at the beginning but that's maybe not something I know yeah um, so what happens to that original play that you submit it just kind of gets it just kind of hangs out my google drive I don't know <laughs> So maybe they were looking kind of for stylistic mm-hmm. prowess or something at that point. Yeah, I think that also by taking the original works to kind of see what their writing style is like and then challenging them with a prompt might make them think outside of their normal box. Or by taking a prompt, it opens a new chain of mm-hmm. creativity. And so, Michelle, you're one of the directors. Does yes. each play have a different director or do you do two? Or who else is directing this year? Typically, there's a different director for each one, but... A director can certainly do more than one. I am personally only directing one. It happens to be one of Audra's works. And then uh, Dana Bucky is directing two of the works, um, one of mine and also one of Nathan O'Neill's. And then Angel Kinnison Scott is directing one of Nathan's as well. Mm -hmm. And then... Who is directing your other one, Audra? Dana Bucky and Michelle Curry. But I don't know the, the third... The third... The third director's name. Yeah, she's she's sorry for director. Phenomenal. (laughs) She's wonderful. Yes. (laughs) Yeah, I'm sure she's really great. But just having this opportunity to be brought people that I've never met before, and yet we're in the same theater community. Yeah, it's it's a way to bring people together. Now, is it your choice which play you direct, or are they assigned? I have this. I imagine it's like The Voice, and all three directors are in this kind of giant swivel chairs, and then you just (laughs) you hear the actor start to read, and you swivel around, and you say, "That's the one I want." Is that is that how it works? (laughs) That's kind of how hiring the actor. All the directors sat in one room and watched everybody audition. And as soon as the last actor walked out, they said, "Okay, so let's start the discussion of who wants who." And I'm like, "I want Dee Dee Folkert." So (laughs) I said, "Sorry, I thought the discussion started." Did you have any, so you didn't have any say, Audrey, in who was performing in your play? It was all the director's choice? I didn't really put an input, you know, because that's not really my forte. So um, I feel like I'm a really great musical director when it comes to musical theater, but someone else should cast. You know, (laughs) I'll tell you when they're not like, yeah, they're singing in tune. Go for it. You know, (laughs) that's more of my thing. So I really, yeah. And I did, I did notice whenever they said, you know, this person or this person seems to work better. I'm like, yes, totally. But no, that was their choices. <laughs> so you chose the actors, Michelle. But then did you then choose the play as well? Or the actors were already 
in the play. So whoever, whichever actors you chose, you've got the play that they went with. Yeah. I'll actually go back to your previous question was, do the directors choose the play or is it vice versa? And I think it's a little bit of both. Sometimes the playwrights re- recruit their own director because they know that this person will represent their vision. But in my case, I was kind of a free agent. I, I contacted the Starting Gate Play Festival and said, I'm interested in being a director if there's any slots open or if any playwrights need a director. And um, in there were a couple cases and they paired me up with Audra and she had a couple shows so and two directors. So she actually got to assign, I think, which director did what. Mm-hmm. It was it was Audra's choice at that at that point. They had said, here's two directorial candidates. Take them or leave them. Put them with what you want. And yeah. so they assigned me to the 10-minute play called All the Things, which is a touching story of a woman visiting her mother who has um, early-onset dementia. Were you interested in being an actor in any of the plays, too? Or do you feel like Audra's honing her uh, writing skills? Are you honing your directorial skills? That's exactly right. <laughs> okay. I'm trying to... Uh, have a little bit more credentials from the directing realm. As much as I love acting, too, I'd like to move into being more of a director as I start to get older. Okay. I, I hope you stop, don't stop being on stage because <laughs> it's always a joy to watch you. So, Audrey, you have two plays in the festival. Um, as Michelle said, you have one called All the Things mm-hmm. about a woman visiting her mother who has dementia and one called Cat on a Leash. Mm-hmm. One of them is definitely a tearjerker. Yeah. And the other is strange with a side of poignancy. <laughs> I, who described that as strange with a side of poignancy? I love that. Thank you. <laughs> it's the story. Of, I'll let you finish. <laughs> so I was going to say, first of all, give me a precy of all the things. We had an outline, but how does, how does it flesh out a little bit? Um, it, it really is. It, the, the first title of it was, the working title was A Summer Visit. Um, and it's uh, based off of the visit uh, to see my family this summer. And just uh, my my grandmother uh, on my father's side and my grandmother on my mother's side both suffered from uh, dementia whenever they got older. And um, seeing your parents' age and seeing similarities, you know, and we, just the cycle of life. And so telling that story of just kind of a very real, there's nothing glamorous about it, you know, sometimes about what we experience with family and um, just the cycle of life. So that was the story I wanted to tell. I wondered how personal it was. I wasn't sure if you were talking about your own parents, but you're talking about your, about your grandparents and your parents' relationship with your grandparents. Um, it's kind of a little bit of both. Um, definitely, um, you know, it's about my mother and it's also about my grandparents. We had on the show a couple of weeks ago a Missouri Poet Laureate Emeritus, Walter Bargain, and he was talking about his new book called My Other Mother's Red Mercedes, which actually you can hear him read and talk from next Thursday at Skylark Bookshop in the evening. But it's about his relationship with his mother and their experience of her Alzheimer's. And one of the most poignant motifs that ran through the book was his sense of guilt, of not Mm. having done enough. And I think that comes across quite well in your play, um, do you never you can never be there enough and you can yes. never do enough and uh and and also at one point they, when the daughter is talking to the mother's husband in your play and he says to her it's the disease it's right. not your mother and that's such a sad reality that sense of seeing the physical person right. that you've loved all your life but right. no longer being able to commune with them as the person you used to know right and in the scene where the mother and daughter actually have a moment where the mother is very lucid and they're having that connection i think that that one last night when i watched dress was actually harder 
than any of the other scenes. Some of the stuff that I thought was harder to to live through was so much harder to watch the part where they were actually able to commune and they touch base. You see that kind of that moment where they're they're there together. Um, that was actually harder, which I was surprised by. Yeah, yeah. I don't. I, I didn't. I wanted to take that scene out, so I thought it was so interesting. I'm like, oh no, that really worked. <laughs> yeah, the door yeah. opens and and they're together yeah. again. Um, the other thing that stood out for me, and which I think you portray really well, is the inevitable, totally inappropriate, and sometimes hurtful comments. <laughs> that somebody with Alzheimer's can can make yes. and, and how you manage those moments. So yeah. the the daughter is kind of horrified on numerous occasions when um, her mother yes. says something inappropriate in the hearing of the person who really shouldn't be hearing it. Yes, yes. <laughs> so well done. Yeah, oh, thanks. <laughs> <laughs> it was painful to live it too. So <laughs> Right. I, I, think, I think so many of us have gone through or are going through or are about to start going through that issue with our parents. Mm-hmm. So I think it's going to hit home for a lot of people and probably take some tissues with you. Is that? <laughs> so then we have your second play, Cat mm-hmm. on a Leash. What happens in that play? So Cat on a Leash is, um, what I really wanted Cat on a Leash to be was a series of short stories um, about the first gay people I met. And so years ago, I was like, I'm going to tell stories about all the gay people I met before I came out. And this just came out in a 10-minute play. And this is about Betsy and her partner, Fran. They're working out of a very dingy, disgusting hotel room in a little tiny small town. And they're selling tickets for a bogus magic show. Um, (laughs) which is, again, true to life. Um, And uh, the character in the play, uh, the lead, goes to work for them. And it's about her experience as a teenage girl meeting a lesbian couple for the first time and kind of how that goes, along with the oddity that it all takes place in a weird hotel room. And you were that teenage girl? Yes, And do, do Fran and Betsy really exist? Yes, Oh, yeah. And did you go to their dingy hotel room (laughs) to apply for a telemarketing job? Absolutely. And I did. I sold tickets for that magic show when I was 18 years old. (laughs) It's the weirdest thing. And I can't get rid of that story. And I thought, well, this is a way, at least if you're never going to write that book of short stories, maybe you should just tell a story. So do you know who Mario Mancini is? I do. Is is he the is he the performer in the play? Because when I read the play, I thought this is Mario Mancini, Colombia's own escape artist, who performs like Elvis you, and dangles from a crane in a straitjacket. This has to you be. have Nancy Drew this, Diana. You've done it. It's absolutely. A, I call him Mario Martiniano in the play, but it is absolutely Colombia's own Mario Mancini. Ka-ching. I did not realize that was a true story. <laughs> You cannot put someone as inquisitive as Diana on that and not have her figure it out. I love it. Oh, it's going to tickle me all day. I had uh, um, hired Mario to perform at Art in the Park a couple of years ago, which is how immediately I read it. I thought, I have met this man. I know who he is. Now, in in the true life version, were you selling tickets for um, a Mario Mancini show? Yes. 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 <laughs> yes. Absolutely. That's what I was doing. Yeah. Oh, oh, my goodness. So it that seems bizarre when you read it. But if you know Mario, it's not that bizarre. It's <laughs> <laughs> that's, And when you see the play, it, it's not that bizarre either if you know Mario. Right. Yep. So my next question is going to be, why did Ruth take the job, the character in the play? But now that you've said, explained kind of the background to it, mm-hmm. I can see why Ruth took the job because Wait. she was 
unknowingly curious about this lifestyle that she hadn't maybe encountered right. before. Um, it wasn't like a bad word to say gay or lesbian in Maryville, Missouri, but it was a bad word to say. <laughs> you know, people were had kind intentions. They right. had be, the best of hearts in that kind of um, straight, white privilege kind of way. Um, but it was definitely... When I started becoming curious about my sexuality, I didn't have a lot of places to turn. So any time that I would meet anyone, it was like, oh, well, I might want to know more about them. But I was so closeted that that wasn't something I could really express. I don't know if that makes sense. So I hope the play touches on it. I don't know if it does or not. <laughs> you know, now that you've explained all of this, it's going to mean a lot more to me when I see it tonight. <laughs> so when Ruth is talking to her clearly much less sheltered friend, Melinda, about accompanying Betsy to a lesbian bar, mm-hmm. and Melinda is pointing out how in many ways Betsy is clearly a lesbian, Melinda's final sign-off comment is, she walks a cat on a leash for Pete's sake. Ruth, she's so very, very gay. <laughs> and I guess... I must be as sheltered as Ruth, as I did never, I'd never conflated cats on leashes with lesbians. Is this really a thing? No, I just thought that that was so interesting when I was a, when I was a teenager. I'm like, why would you ever walk a cat on a leash? And what's that about? And the only people I've ever known who've walked cats on leashes are lesbians. <laughs> I that's my own stereotype. It's my own thing. Don't. I think <laughs> I think the phones are going to light up now by people who are not lesbians who walk their cats on leashes. So please don't call in. <laughs> I just didn't know that. So that that's one that's why. I don't think I've actually ever seen anybody walking a cat on a leash. I know it exists theoretically, but um never seen it. <laughs> At the second I see it I will take a picture and post it for you. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah. Maybe maybe the speaking of the arts Facebook page will be flooded with cats on leash photographs by the time we get off air. <laughs> So um, uh, maybe you don't know the answer to this, but can you tell me a little bit about the playwrights behind the other four plays? So we've got Nathan O'Neill and Haley Rushing. What do we what do we know about about those two new playwrights completely? I think that Nathan, <clears throat> I'm almost positive that Nathan did some work over at MU with writing, um, with their I think it was a 24 hour playwriting festival. So I know yeah, he's he done actually that. won that. Oh yeah, okay. Mm-hmm. He okay. won the 24 hour playwriting, and his contest. work is um, what you call it like. It's metaphoric. So, yeah, all of his works are, there's a much larger issue that he's addressing, um, for example, in Bears. But you you really get that, that, the comedic sense of it is perfect, even though he's going from, what am I trying to say? He's coming from a very um, sarcastic point of view. So you get that comedic timing. When I first read Bears, I thought it was actually about bears. But then I reread the scripts. So I thought, there's some really strange uh, uh, dialogue in this play. And then I realized that the bears were metaphors. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so maybe we should let people work it out for themselves. Right. Um, but yes, it's not about bears. Yeah. And, and last night, Nathan said something that, that really touched me a lot in helping understand his works. We had a kind of a mini talk back because after each one of the Starting Gate Play Festival shows, there will be a talk back with each of the playwrights. So that's just another level of why this is such a great festival to come to because you get to actually hear what the playwrights were thinking. And one thing that Nathan said was, especially after his experience playwriting with Mizzou, he says, you know, I enjoy your run-of-the-mill fluffy play. Those are so fun to write. But when given the opportunity at the Starting Gate Play Festival, he said, 
now that I have this opportunity to have a voice, I'm going to use it. Mm -hmm. So in both of the shows that he's written, they are poignant, they are relevant, and they are addressing issues in our society today. And hearing him say that, you know, if you've got a platform, use it. Right. And Haley's uh, two works are about Greek goddesses, yes. reimagined in mm -hmm. maybe a more, con well, not necessarily contemporary setting, but kind of contemporary dialogue, Absolutely. contemporary attitudes. Oh, yes. <laughs> and the, the first about the beauty pageant is perfect. And we have a lovely dose of drag with Mark Baumgartner <laughs> doing some work and being Athena, correct? Uh, yes. Yes. So yeah. Athena or Hera? He's, he's Hera. Hera. He's Hera. Oh, Marcus Hera. Yes. That's awesome. <laughs> Mark Baumgartner playing Hera with a wig and a beard. Yeah, it's fantastic. <laughs> so who are the local actors who are in the plays? Do you remember the cast list? There are, it's pretty uh, extensive, actually. Yeah. Uh, most plays have unique actors. A couple of plays share one. Um, so Dee Dee Ferris, for example, is in All the Things, and she's also in Bears. Mm -hmm. And then... Lori Fuhrer is in uh, one of my plays. So I wish I had the list right in front of me. Yeah, All the Things, uh, the one that I directed, has got Lori, Lori Fuhrer, Dee Dee Ferris, Mc and David McSpadden. Okay. And as for Cat on a Leash, there's some new talent. I think um, we've got some people, some of the actors are participating for the very first time, as well as some participating for the fifth year in a row. So all across the spectrum of acting abilities here. So you, uh, you, you put the play out there, you've written the play, you've submitted it, mm -hmm. uh, it's been accepted or they, you're, you've worked on it, and then you see it being performed. Do, do you think after tonight you're going to go away and change the play do you feel like you feel like it's a finished version now or do you still think as you see it performed over the next couple of nights you might think oh I want to tweak that dialogue or I want to add a line in here you know last night was the first time I got to see it because their tech rehearsals were during when I'm teaching because you know my my schedule's a little different so I I didn't have that experience last night but I don't know what I'm going to feel like tonight <laughs> so I don't really I don't know I think that'll be interesting to find out. Yeah. Are you allowed? I guess you're not allowed to make changes at this point. Not no, this I would never ask. No, I would never ask that. Just because I know what it's like when someone walks up to me at the piano with that. Right. It's like, oh, sure, sure. We've been doing that way for three weeks, but I got it. I can totally remember that. How right. difficult is it letting go of something that you've birthed and giving it to a director and then letting the director do their thing to it? Do you, do you uh, A, have a say in how they might interpret certain parts or are you happy to let go? Is it difficult to watch it after someone else has handled it? Um, I was really grateful to let it go. Um, just because the projects that I've done in the past, whenever Trent and I wrote Starting With My Voice and we did that tour, um, we were directing as well as being in the show, both he and I. So he was on stage and I was in the pit. So it's just really nice to have someone else take the work and then I went and watched it. That felt really good. I really enjoyed that, that part of it. And at the very beginning of this process, when the directors were first assigned to Audra, she was very kind and reached out. She says, how involved do you want me to be? And I gave my opinion pretty early on was, I think that this is a chance for you to give it to somebody else's eyes where they might see something that you've never seen before. And, you know, it might not be what you envision, but that can help you rewrite the script so that it does translate a little bit better. But I think it's very important for most playwrights who some were involved from the beginning. They were at all the rehearsals mm -hmm. and even kind of bossed the directors around a little bit. But I think it's better to let go and, and 
because you're not always going to be there, especially if you're looking to get your works published and produced in other places to see it through somebody else's eyes. Mm -hmm. Did anything change for you after you'd seen Michelle's production? I think that that's the scene in the middle that really stood out in a way that um, I think that she really brought out that shines like the between the actors and their Dee Dee and Lori Lori just bring a really beautiful uh, sense of connection to that scene and David is perfect he just the way that he is so relaxed and calm I don't know if it's because of his you know profession you know that he that he genuinely understands mental mental illness and how it changes how it changes us and also just physical illness how it changes us but they really I really love that she brought all of that out in them it's it's beautiful so what happens to the play now does it go into a drawer do you look for a publisher what's the what, what a great question I have no idea <laughs> I, I really I wanted to write something where I couldn't rely on the, the actors singing to express themselves I had to express it through words only and so that way when I go to write um, the next song cycle that I've been working on I have more tools in my pocket that was kind of the overall goal for me I noticed that you put on Facebook yesterday you said I entered Starting Gate New Play Festival because I am working on writing a new musical theatre song cycle I wanted to expand my skills on writing for characters without having them break into song it's true (laughs) it's really what I wanted to do because you can there's so many things you can do with music that it's a little harder whenever you have to just sit eye to eye and write that dialogue. I can sometimes get away with not being so um, eloquent because I just wanted to rhyme that word. And it works, <laughs> in a, you know, it works with that melody line and it works, you know, you can like, kind of get away with it because there's a nice violin part underneath it. But so that part was a good challenge for me. It was very challenging. So Starting Gate New Play Festival is at Talking Horse Theatre tonight and tomorrow at 7.30 p.m. with a 2 p.m. matinee on Sunday. How do people get tickets? Are tickets available for all performances still? They are. And you can walk up as well if you want to. It's at, located on St. James Street or you can get your tickets online at www.talkinghorseproduction.com productions.org which is where I got my tickets thank you (laughs) we appreciate the support so I will be in the audience tonight and very excited to see all of the six new plays um anything else people should know before we close I think there's a really there's a wide variety of work and I think that Haley and Nathan's and my work are all very different and I really enjoyed that and I feel like it's a very quick hour and 15 minutes because they're they're really it goes quickly you're like wow we're already done that's all six so that part i like that as an audience member too yeah yeah it's quick and it'll take you through all the range of emotions yep okay (laughs) get a drink at dogmaster distillery grab a packet of tissues and head on in (laughs) you'll be uh, laughing and crying with tears in your eyes um ladies thank you so very much thank you and uh, we'll see you next time when you come in as an origami master (laughs) order i believe I look forward to it. You're listening to Speaking of the Arts, and I'm Diana Moxon. As usual, we'll end the show with a look at some of the events that are coming up over the next few days in and around Columbia. This afternoon sees the opening reception for a new art show at MU's Bingham Gallery called Future Tense 2, which offers a glimpse into the future of contemporary fibres by presenting work being made by students in the field today. That opening is from 4 till 6pm, and it is free to attend. In the theatre world, you have one more weekend to see Columbia Entertainment Company 
drama, Agnes of God. That show starts at 7.30 tonight and tomorrow, plus a 2pm matinee on Sunday. At Talking Horse Theatre this weekend, you have the Starting Gate New Play Festival with six one-act plays written by three local playwrights. Their show starts at 7.30 tonight and tomorrow with a 2pm matinee on Sunday and tickets are $10. At the Rheinsberger Theatre on the MU campus, you can hear a programme of opera scenes, including the world premiere of A Certain Madness by Hans Bridger Herruth. Their show starts at 7.30 tonight and tomorrow and tickets are $5. At Stevens College, the Warehouse Theatre Company performs Sans Merci through the weekend with evening performances starting at 7.30 and a 2pm matinee on Sunday. Tickets are $8. Also opening in Jefferson City this weekend and continuing next weekend is Picasso at La Panagile at the Scene One Theatre. Their curtain rises at 7.30. At the Yin Yang Club tonight, it is the Miss Gay City of Columbia America pageant, the official prelim to the Miss Gay Missouri America. And we will honour our 2018 Miss Gay City of Columbia America uh, winner, Ciara. That evening kicks off at 8pm and tickets are $15. The Columbia Weavers and Spinners Guild will have their annual holiday expo at the Boone History and Culture Centre this weekend, starting today and continuing on Saturday and Sunday. Tomorrow, Saturday afternoon, you can take a good art workshop at Mid-Missouri Arts Alliance in Ashland. That workshop costs $35 and it includes all your supplies and you do need to pre-register, so check out their Facebook page. Saturday evening, MU Asian Affairs hosts an evening of the Sounds of Japan at the Missouri Theatre with the Columbia Chorale on the, and the Osua Taiko Drumming Ensemble from St. Louis. That concert starts at 7 and tickets are $20. Sunday evening, the We Always Swing Jazz Series returns to Murray's with the Katie Thoreau Trio performing two concerts at 3.30 and 7pm. And you can contact the Jazz Series for tickets. At the Missouri Theatre on Sunday evening, you can see the Missouri Symphony Conservatory Orchestras featuring all state and district competition winners from the Central Missouri area. Their concert starts at 7 and tickets are $10. On Monday evening, there is an evening of poetry reading to remember poet Monica Hand, who passed away suddenly in December 2016. A reading of select poems from her book Divida, published posthumously this April, will be performed by invited poets from three poetry communities that were close to Monica's heart and those are the Poets of Infinity of Stevens College, the Arts Collective One Mic and the University of Missouri Creative Writing Programme. That event is at Orr Street Studios from 7 till 9. Thursday, next Thursday, November the 15th, head to Skylark Bookshop to hear Missouri Poet Laureate Emeritus Walter Bargain talk about and read works from his new book, My Other Mother's Red Mercedes. His talk is from 6 till 7pm. In Jefferson City, the Little Theatre opens its production of the comedy A Little Theatre Never Hurt Anybody. Their show starts at 7.30 and continues on Friday and Saturday and tickets are $15. Resident Arts will hold their third annual Fill Your Plates fundraiser at Reichman Pavilion next Thursday. Tickets for that fundraiser cost $35 and include food, drink, art sale and a communal paint by numbers. Pace Youth Theatre opens its four-date production of The Jungle Book at Columbia Entertainment Company next Thursday. Their show starts at 7 and tickets are 10 for adults and 5 for children. And finally, next Thursday, the MU Choral Union presents Handel's Messiah at Jesse Auditorium at 7 and tickets are $23. You've been listening to Speaking of the Arts at 89.5 FM KOPN Columbia with me Diana Moxon and my good friend and sound engineer Mike Hagan. I'll be back next week with more news, views and interviews on the arts in mid-Missouri. Stay arty Columbia.